This week on Political Research Digest, how to change Americans' views of inequality from television to national service. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. American inequality is high and rising, but much of the public still believes the American dream is alive and well for anyone who works hard. Those views are hard to change, but new research suggests two paths with large effects in opposite directions. The National Service Program, Teach for America, can move attitudes of the teachers who participate towards those of the racial minority and poor students they teach. I talked to Cecilia Moe of the University of California, Berkeley, about her new American Political Science Review article with Katherine Kahn, When Did the Advantage See the Disadvantages of Others? She finds that those who just barely made the cutoff have lower racial resentment and higher perceptions of structural inequality compared to those who just missed it. But this effort is up against a dominant American narrative that anyone can make it with hard work, a perspective advanced daily on popular television. I also talk with N.G. Kim of the University of Pennsylvania about her new paper, Entertaining Beliefs in Economic Mobility. She finds that rags-to-riches stories on reality TV shows make viewers into strong believers in the American dream. Attitudes toward inequality differ a lot across social groups based on their disadvantaged or advantaged position. And Cecilia Moe set out to find out how to close that gap. The focus of the study is first recognizing that there's great divisions by both class and race in our country in terms of how they view the fairness of our society, whether or not meritocracy is something that is just a notion and an idea or something that is real in this country. So when we're seeing that there's these big differences where those who are more well-off, advantaged, if you will, are viewing that the American dream is alive and well. And meanwhile, disadvantaged low-income individuals or uh, racial minorities are seeing that inequality is really uh, stark in this country and that this idea that if you just work hard, you can get ahead, that that is just a pipe dream. Our starting point was that, sort of recognizing that difference. And so the question was, well, what is possible, what can be done, you know, short of actually decreasing inequality, um, what can be done to have advantaged individuals in the society take on the perspective of those who do not have as much as them. She was motivated by her personal experience in Teach for America, known as TFA, which changed her views. I was a Teach for America Corps member in 2002. I served as a high school math teacher in in Los Angeles. I think that, not I think, I know that my experience there translated to certain shifts on my end. And I think I was curious to see if I was an anomaly or an empirical regularity. It was a widespread experience. They found that participation had huge lasting effects on the views of society. We see these participants really taking on and adopting perspectives that are a lot more reflective of disadvantaged members of our country, seeing that the economic, social, and political status quo is not quite as healthy, that things are not quite as fair, and that racial tolerance actually also increases, and that this is something that happens after they have this immersive experience, but it's actually quite durable that even seven years later, we still see this effect. Teach for America moves elite recent college graduates into the nation's poorest schools. Teach for America was an organization that started in 1990. 
and it recruits some of the highest performing kind of college graduates in this country. They do amazing work in being able to track something like over 50,000 individuals uh, to apply each year. And when you look at the numbers, you know, they're able to attract, say, 9% of all seniors at Ivy League schools to apply. And what they do is they place these top college graduates to some of the lowest performing schools in this country, and they serve as teachers in these schools for at least two years. It's part of a long tradition of national service programs that sought to both serve communities and transform participants. Even at the beginning of the creation of these organizations, there was some sense that national service can do something really meaningful for the participant themselves, that eventually it would create a more civically engaged uh, group of individuals that sort of really care about the health of their country. But that doesn't make it easy to change attitudes toward inequality and race, which tend to be very resistant. Racial attitudes are really hard to change and ideas around disadvantage. uh, Those are all really hard to change. And I think it all starts with a uh, um, psychology concept known as the fundamental attribution error. There's sort of this natural tendency uh, to see the behavior of others as determined by their character while excusing their own behavior based on circumstance. And then people also have a tendency to sort of, sort of deny discriminatory actions towards you know, outgroups. Mo and Khan took advantage of Teach for America's application process change, which now uses a cutoff score to determine who is accepted. Teach for America in 2007 started implementing a selection process where there was a cutoff score where those who made during the interview process had a score that exceeded this cutoff score were then admitted and those who were below that cutoff score were rejected. And this empirical researcher was was really helpful as the main concern uh, with doing studies like this are what we call selection bias, right? That there might be that certain types of individuals apply to this program. So are we really picking up an effect, which is just, you know, sorting that people of a certain kind of disposition are applying to these programs? If we just focused on participants, we might not really be picking up on, on any effects of the program. We're just picking up you know, something about the types of people who do the service work. So by leveraging the selection score, we can compare those who are barely admitted to those who are barely rejected. And the idea is that they, these two groups are largely similar, except for the fact that those who were barely accepted actually participated in the program. That makes it possible to identify the causal effect of participation but we still don't know how big the effect on applicants would compare to making the less interested participate. In an ideal, I guess, researcher world, we'd just be able to mandate this program and randomly assign people to two different groups. Uh, I think there are a number of things in terms of how we generalize. So one could imagine that what we pick up is an overestimate if the people who are eager to apply for these national service programs are those who are, say, more, you know, open to seeing social injustice, that they are really eager to sort of take in uh, what's going on and and then are more of an activist bent. So if that is who is applying for the program, you could imagine that the effects of the program are, are overestimates. But on the flip side, We could say that there could be ceiling effects, meaning, you know, if these people who are participating in the program are already of the sort of, you know, progressive activist bent who are very much sympathetic to the plights of the the marginalized communities in our country, that there wasn't really much room to change. 
For this group, Mo found big changes in both their awareness of inequality and their disappointment in political institutions' ability to address it. TFA participants are more disappointed with how the institutions work and more likely to say that there's systematic injustices. I can take a a step back and think about some of the interviews I had with alums, and they sort of speak to, I had no idea, you know, I was a public school kid. I had no idea that some public schools in our country would have chairs falling apart, might have teachers that are largely sort of babysitting and not really teaching their kids anything. And this this sort of disappointment um, that took over. And I think it's that kind of experience that's translating to this perspective that, you know what, our, our, our institutions are not working for some members of our society. That just because you are a public school kid, depending on what neighborhood you're in, you are getting a very different type of education that's going to set you up for more or less success. They also found massive effects on racial attitudes, enough to close the gap between whites and blacks on attitudes about black disadvantage. In terms of the magnitude, a 12.6 percentage point reduction in racial resentment. Well, what does that mean? Uh, So if we look at sort of how average black Americans and white Americans answer this racial resentment battery in the American National Election Study, we see that 12.6 percentage point is uh, equivalent to 72% of the difference between the average white, like how the average white American and the average black American answers this question. So the effect sizes are quite huge. We interpret this as, as a decrease in blaming of minority communities for where they are in life. They found changes in closeness to particular groups, but only for those who actually taught the group in question. Across the board, we saw racial resentment decrease. But when we asked questions around closeness to these communities, uh, we saw that the closeness questions really only changed among those who really had day-to-day experiences with those communities. So 80% of the school student population that TFA participants work with are African-American or Hispanic. But the range of communities that TFA places in quite vary. So, you know, when you're placing in, say, the Rio Grande Valley versus Baltimore versus Detroit, uh, a participant might be in a school where it's 90% African-American. Other participants might be in communities where it's 90%, 100% Hispanic. In addition to sort of like general questions around race, we asked these specific questions around specific groups of like, how do you... Do you view yourself as closer to the African-American community, Hispanic community, and other other groups? And we saw that uh, in terms of these closeness measures, they were restricted to the participants who actually were in communities like that. So if you are a TFA participant that is in a largely Hispanic community, we saw movement and closeness to the Hispanic community, but not necessarily the African-American community or Asian-American community or any other groups. If you were a TFA participant who was mostly working with African-Americans, we saw a movement in closeness to the African-American community, but not necessarily movement in other groups. They even found effects on unexpressed implicit biases based on skin color. We also asked this implicit racial measure. So we use implicit association test with skin color and traditional studies on implicit bias. So implicit bias is sort of that unconscious automatic bias that people might not be aware that they even have. So we included that measure and studies speak to how 
amazingly difficult it is to change that. And, and it makes sense if it's unconscious, it's something that's it's a bit more difficult to move. And at least in our study, we actually saw that skin color bias uh, went down and that that reduction was actually quite significant and meaningful. So that was also something that was gave us pause and, and hopefulness that, you know, even unconscious biases can change with these deep immersive experiences. Mo is happy to show that encounters with minority groups can lead to positive results, but she knows it's difficult to scale up the program to give most Americans a similar experience. I think what makes me optimistic is that there's been so many studies that sort of speak to how intergroup contact may not necessarily translate to good outcomes. Thinking about, you know, say the work of Putnam, that, you know, you have greater diversity and it might actually translate to breakdowns in trust. So, you know, when we're thinking and sort of seeing these kind of studies that showed, you know what, it's really hard to have groups actually take on the perspective of others. It turns out that sometimes having groups that are very different bump up with one another can translate to greater polarization. This study gives me a lot of hope and uh, optimism that there is in fact a way to bring people together and bridge differences and not just, you know, have have these differences be accentuated. You know, where where I have some pauses, you know, Teach for America is is not a simple intervention. It's not going to be an easy sell to just say, you know what, every single person should be doing something like TFA or a Peace Corps and invest multiple years of their life uh, to service. Where I, you know, have some greater optimism is this this sort of interest in, say, these uh, gap years, encouragement of universities, like really recognizing um, service, alternative spring break programs, and other sort of like smaller scale service-oriented interventions. What we can't say from the study is whether or not all two years were necessary to see this movement. And so future research really needs to unpack at what point can you actually start seeing these changes? Uh, how long Um, how immersive. And so that hasn't fully been sorted out. And so in that sense, you know, it may be a lighter, you know, a lighter touch uh, might be possible. Any efforts will be up against Americans' broad and persistent views that mobility is widespread, the related attitude that NG Kim sought to explain. Dependent variable, which is the perceptions of upper mobility, is something about the capturing the general belief that You think that anyone in America can get ahead as long as they are working hard. Or you think that the United States is still the land of economic opportunity. So these are the beliefs that I'm trying to explain. And the reason why I wanted to explain this variable is because unlike the economic reality of intergenerational mobility rates, which which are refers to the proportion of children who are making more money than their parents at the age of 30 has been declining sharply by by more than 40% over the last two decades. But according to many different surveys and polls, a vast majority of Americans are still very optimistic about the opportunity for a person to get ahead in the US. So this puzzling mismatch between public opinion surveys and the economic reality is something that motivated my entire dissertation project. Americans believe the dream. We have some explanations, but still need to understand who believes the most. 
American political culture has been the most dominant explanation for why Americans believe in the American dream, and almost all qualitative explanations have been along the lines of belief in the American dream is just deeply embedded in American mythology due to a unique set of historical factors, whether it's existence of the frontier or the Protestant work ethic in the colonial era. My dissertation doesn't really challenge this view per se, as these are, there are multiple factors that can, that, that can affect perceptions of economic mobility. But what I'm arguing in my dissertation is that, well, historical experience unique to America as a nation cannot really explain that much the individual variations in perceptions of mobility. So American political culture can explain the constant in the belief in the mobility, but it doesn't really tell us the variations. And right uh, in my paper, I mean, I'm linking the media uh, exposure to mass media to the individual variations in the belief in the American dream. The answer she came up with was television, the entertainment media Americans watch most. The important takeaway is that contemporary Americans are watching a lot of racks to racist entertainment media, ranging from America's Got Talent to Shark Tank. And such content that we consume for leisure every day matters for the city of politics as they affect perceptions of upward economic mobility. Americans stand out internationally both for our high belief in mobility and our extraordinary television diet. Even up to now that Americans are much more optimistic than any other Europeans, and indeed Americans are the only developed economies according to the latest study that overestimates the extent to which upper mobility is possible. Europeans tend to be more pessimistic than economic reality. So that's that. And when it comes to entertainment media, the answer is yes, because uh, when it comes to TV consumption, there's a no other country that comes close to America when it comes to entertainment media consumption. The reality TV boom is global, but no one has caught up to us. The rise of reality TV shows is definitely a global phenomenon. But what's interesting is because the sheer number of hours that Americans watching TV are just overwhelmingly higher than the other countries. So the effects of entertainment media, whether that's uh, reality TV shows that I'm examining in my paper or others, have has to be stronger in the U.S. because we just watch more in this country. Kim focuses on rags to riches television shows, which she defines as being about ordinary Americans winning big payoffs in contests of skill. I uh, focused on three narrative components. So basically, I argue that there are three components when in combination should affect people's belief in the American dream. And then the first one is the presence of an ordinary person. And then the second is the element of hard work and talent. And then the last is the presence of economic benefits. And most of the TV shows that are widely referred to as reality TV shows have all three elements. So as an example, I'm going to use an American Idol which used to be America's single most popular TV show for years. And uh, I don't know whether you remember, but the first winner of the show, American Idol, was Kelly Clarkson, uh, who was a cocktail waitress at a comedy club before entering the contest. She entered the show to pay for her electric bills, <laughs> hoping to just be a backup singer. But at the end of the many episodes, she won the million dollar prize of an RCA record contract. 
So this is a clearly a narrative of an upward mobility uh, trajectory, and a powerful this this kind of story serves as a powerful and positive exemplar that cultivates the view that anyone in America, whether you are a poor waitress or、uh, just a homeowner or just a home cook, can get ahead as long as they have they're ready to take chances, work hard, and have some unique talents ranging from pumpkin carving or to a、uh, making of a new invention. And these shows are popular. Regardless of the demographic groups, in survey data, she confirms that the effects of watching these shows are on par with having immigrant parents and don't show up with other shows. In multivariate regression model that includes, for instance, a lot of demographic variables or religion, party ID, basically、uh, all the factors that. According to previous literature, that might affect belief in the American dream. I find people who watch more than six or more、uh, rags to riches programs are around four percentage points more likely to believe in the American dream, and that effect was similar to the effects of having immigrant parents. But we all know the limitations of observational data and measurement problems of self-reported media consumption, so I wouldn't dwell too much on the size of the effects here. But I wanted to confirm using three different data sets that rags to riches entertainment media have independent explanatory power, even after controlling for the religion, demographics, personal mobility experience, party ID, just to name just a few. And people who watch entertainment media are just fundamentally different from those who don't. So we obviously I worried about spurious,、uh, spurious relations or reverse causation. So I ran a couple of placebo tests to really make sure whether these are really the effects of rags to riches entertainment media. And one such placebo test it was looking at. The watching reality TV show that has no meritocratic component or no rags to riches narrative should not have any effects on the perceptions of economic mobility. So, if the narrative is really the key, as I argue, then watching、uh, Kim Kardashian's or Jersey Shore should not really affect people's in the belief in the American dream. And that's what I found. Republicans and optimists believe in upward mobility more than Democrats in the economically challenged, but everyone watches reality TV. One of the reasons why、uh, people from both partisan aisles are watching these shows is because they're not thinking about politics when they're watching entertainment media. So that's one of the reasons why, in this very polarized、uh, era right now, that entertainment media consumption might might be the the least polarizing content right now. And when it comes to correlations and effect size, absolutely right here that a Republican ideology is the biggest predictor. But the other、uh, important predictor that I found was something about just general level of optimism toward life. So if you just in general think that well you're you're an optimist, then you're more likely to believe in the American dream. But the other、uh, negative predictors was something related to pe- people's personal economic experiences. For instance, if you are unemployed, then definitely you are less likely to believe in the American dream as well. But Kim didn't just rely on surveys. She went out and experimentally took TV to the people. This was basically a huge truck equipped with two rooms, and each room had a TV screen and a chair. So throughout the July to October 2018, I drove this truck to suburban Pennsylvania, particularly targeting local events, farmers markets, or flea markets that attract diverse populations. So people 
Uh, so basically, think about your neighbors or your locals who go to farmers market to do weekly grocery shopping, or I uh, even went to a one blueberry festival <laughs> that where they're selling like blueberry pies and all those like local unique uh, cuisines. So these were the uh, non-partisan events that I targeted to make sure that I can recruit both Democrats and Republicans for my experiments. Recruited on site were paid ten dollars, and most of them thought that it was a scam. <laughs> uh, but people who agreed to participate in my survey were randomly assigned to be in the treatment group. Uh, and those were watching one of four TV programs that have the Rex to reach his narrative, uh, such as American Ninja Warrior or Shark Tank. And those who were in the control group watched a uh, dog intervention reality TV show that featured an ordinary person who's a dog owner, but didn't have any element of hard work or talent or economic benefits. She positioned it as a non-political consumer interest test. So I try to make an impression that what I'm really interested in the survey is their opinions about the TV show itself and whether that's actually entertaining and like marketable to many people rather than like a political survey. Even five minutes of viewing the TV shows had strong effects, but people usually watch much more. In everyday life, Americans are watching this episode or a TV show for an hour instead of for five minutes. Even though I made sure to edit the videos to capture the entire narrative about upper mobility, I think that in real life, the effect size might be stronger than six percentage points because, as I noted, that these are just the effects of watching the program for five minutes. She doesn't know how long the effects would persist, but thinks people watch the shows repeatedly. One of the perennial concerns uh, that we have as media effects scholar is that any media effects are very short-lived, whether it's a campaign effects or effects of being exposure to a political rumor. So these are very short-lived effects. We know that our previous literatures confirm that. But I think one of the uh, methodological convenience of focusing on a shared narrative of uh, rags to riches entertainment media is that because these episodes, these programs are constantly airing in the air, that even if the media effects are short-lived, if you're watching this every single night or every week, then it just reinforces and, and the effects will accumulate. So I think for this particular type of uh, study, I worry less about the duration of media effects uh, relative to for instance, studies that we look at the effects of partisan media or uh, political news. Rags to Riches TV might even explain the rise of Donald Trump, star of The Apprentice. People view Donald Trump much more favorably due to their previous exposure to The Apprentice. And we know from uh, decades of political science literature that name recognition and favorability ratings are powerful political tools that are often linked to electoral fortunes. So I think that's the that might happen the mechanism. And to the extent that Americans are watching four hours of TV every day, and that most Americans are watching entertainment media over news media, I think more politicians might be turning to entertainment media to build their rep reputations and maximize their exposure to the public. The Apprentice, particularly the earlier seasons, fit the, the characteristics of the Rags media because it features ordinary contestants who ultimately get a job at Manhattan and an opportunity to work for Donald Trump. So, 
in this particular episode or、uh, in this particular TV show, Donald Trump are not necessarily rags to riches because he wasn't really poor to begin with, and he was not really seeking a job. But I think because the overall narrative of that particular very popular TV show was the idea of self-made man, and Donald Trump was viewed as a person who's giving out that opportunity to ordinary people, I think that kind of I don't want to oversell this, obviously, but it's a lot. It's very in sync with the idea that he is the only person who can make the America great again and who can make the American economic fortunes to expand. So I think it's in sync with the narrative that he was selling in The Apprentice. It certainly fits with a historical story. People hold on to rags to riches stories even in the face of inequality. Historians actually agree that one of the reasons why Americans turn to、uh, Horatio Alger's Rex Reese's dime novels, and the reason why these are popular, had like two parts. So first of all, maybe the income inequality motivated people to、uh, consume more of those stories just to justify the status quo. So that's absolutely、um, one part of the answer. And then the other part is that well. On top of that, on top of that,、uh, psychological explanations. These popular novels were just popular, and people happened to be reading them, and that affected people's belief in the American dream. So I think it goes both ways. And even today, it might be true that because we have like widening gap between the rich and poor, and maybe that's why we're just turning more to the rags to riches stories because we want to hold on to that dream. But whatever the reason that made people to watch the entertainment TV, the end result, as my experimental data and observational data show, is that whatever the mechanism that makes people to tune into that TV show, the consequences of watching the rags to riches entertainment media is that they make people to believe more in the American dream. Cecilia Mo agrees that Americans are attracted to these kinds of stories, but not everyone believes, and the difficulty is getting the advantage to see the views of the disadvantaged. Now, I think these sort of rags to riches kind of shows, you know, they they do like emphasizing、um, meritocracy and you know what it means, what this American dream looks like, and I think my starting point was that, you know, people have different reactions. To to these rags to riches stories that that some folks were like yeah that's very much、uh, what's possible in this country and I'm going to work hard and I you know I want to be in I want to be able to have more than what my parents had and then there's other individuals that look at these stories and say like yeah that that's great but that just doesn't apply to me that that people like me don't get to get ahead in life in that way. And some of the、uh, questions that were asked of racial minorities, for instance, um, you know, the way in which they answer questions around meritocracy and hard work, their response will be, "Yeah, hard work is really important. It's just that that's not enough." And so I might sort of, like, in, in sort of seeing these studies, I would be inclined to say that that community will look at these stories and say, "Like, that's great. It just doesn't apply to me." If we then sort of think about the people who say, "Like, what、well, does apply to me?" I think the question is like, how do you get those who think that the rags to riches is possible, and and sort of think about, you know, what maybe that actually doesn't work in all cases, and having that broader perspective and being able to be empathetic to communities that just feel that that story is not not the story for their community and is something that's more of an exception. And Inchi Kim says persistent beliefs in the ease of pulling yourself up will be hard to change. 
There has been like heightened media coverage of the fading American dream, and like politicians from Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump said enough that American dream has turned into an American nightmare. But concurrently, an alarming number of Americans have been tuning out the news entirely. So. I think that's one of the reasons why I do not have optimistic answer to your question. And then the truth is that the stories of downward economic mobility is not as fun or as entertaining as the stories of upward mobility because who wants to tune in to the riches to rags entertainment media versus rags to riches entertainment media? So I think this particular upward mobility storyline is just appealing to us as human beings because that's what we want to hear. And I don't think that entertainment media in any days to come will produce the opposite storyline. And just because we are watching more and more entertainment media as media choices increase, and given that Americans are just watching so much TV, I'm not really sure what would be the countervailing trends to inform Americans about the actual mobility rates. Mo's next step is to find out whether national service programs can not just change attitudes, but actually promote political action. And the initial results are promising. The other sort of natural next step is it's one thing when you see attitudinal belief shifts. It's another thing if those shifts actually translate to action. So given that the effects that we saw were more sort of this disappointment in how institutions were failing and this recognition that there were these groups that were more disenfranchised, one could imagine that it could actually, you know, cause sort of greater depression and just being sad. And and if people are then sort of feeling these changes and they're being depressed and sort of want to crawl into a hole, that is something that could logically happen. On the flip side, one might imagine that people could be really activated and want to do something about what they see. And so the next questions that I'm asking are, you know, do these shifts in beliefs and attitudes translate to real behavioral changes? You know, what are they picking in terms of their careers? Are they more civically engaged? Are they more likely to run for office? Are they more likely to vote and register to vote? And so in terms of some of the next things that I'm immediately, you know, I can sort of speak to the fact that it seems like our, our, our initial analysis of turnout, like that we are seeing greater voter turnout amongst those who participate in TFA, which is really exciting, and greater voter registration. It does seem like people are picking careers that are not necessarily the most lucrative, but are really more linked with making systemic changes. But Kim says if we want to understand where mainstream Americans are coming from, we may need to stop ignoring what they watch most. We are not really talking about the elephant in the room, which is the fact that Americans are consuming an overwhelming amount of entertainment media in every day. And the alarming number of them are tuning out the news entirely. And the their effects on economic perceptions or intergroup relations like racial stereotypes, just to name a few, are just like vastly understudied. And I sometimes wonder whether the reasons why entertainment media is so understudied in the field of social science is because of a sense of elitism that we just don't study this content because this content are so low, lowbrow. We they are not worthy of research. They are just unfortunate distractions from a democratic society. And I think as media environment is changing and as more people are watching entertainment news, maybe this norm has to change. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Cecilia Moe and Inji Kim for joining me. 
Join us next time to find out how Americans react to increasingly diverse places.